You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. These sorts of changes are absolutely vital to tennis in terms of short-form tennis, a refined Davis Cup in terms of new formats like beach tennis. Tennis has to experiment and try things because the perception of tennis in South Africa and the perception of tennis globally is that it's an elitist sport. I think a lot of people say we should be focusing on big events and bringing Roger Federer to South Africa and having big ATP events here. But our collective view as as a federation is that we actually have to reinvest in the grassroots because it's all very well bringing those events to South Africa, but not many South Africans would be playing in them at the moment. There were some really nice videos on social media during both the US Open and the Wimbledon run of, of kids in front of the TV with their tennis rackets pretending to be Kevin Anderson. For a sport like ours, which is a sort of a Cinderella or, or B division sport, is absolutely rocket fuel. Hi there. These are crucial times for tennis in South Africa. When Richard Glover took over as CEO two years ago, the governing body was in a perilous financial state. Therefore, his first job was to develop the organisation's partnership portfolio. Job done. His second was to start schemes to develop the grassroots of the game. Meanwhile, at the other end of the spectrum, and unrelated to Glover's tenure, South African men's number one Kevin Anderson was reaching the final of the US Open and Wimbledon. All this has created the conditions for a resurgence. But can Tennis South Africa close out the game when they're only a challenger brand in their sports market? What groups in this deeply sectionalised population are they targeting? Will the Blazers or the country's difficult history play a part? Where does social media fit in? How does a CEO balance long-term and short-term aims? And most importantly, why are they talking about eating elephants? Remember to rate, review, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sports Content Strategy is on all social media, as is Mr. Richard Clark, my personal account. So subscribe to me there on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc. And then there's my blog, MrRichardClark.com, where I talk about all things in sport, digital and social media. Anyway, time to talk Tennis South Africa and eating elephants with this man. Uh, my name is Richard Glover. I'm the CEO of Tennis South Africa for my sins. <laughs> Richard, thanks for speaking to me. You've been in your job for a few years now. Uh, what was the landscape for Tennis South Africa when you arrived? Yeah, I, I started almost two years ago. I think I think we fast approaching my two-year anniversary, if, if I haven't reached it uh, by now. Um, and it, look... I think almost before we talk about tennis in South Africa, we almost need to talk about South Africa because I think um, because of our history and our troubled history and our troubled past, um, South Africa probably has one of the most complex socioeconomic environments um, in the world. Um, we've obviously got a very uh, racially polarized history um, and, 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 a, and a history of racial tensions, and that's made a very complex environment in which to work. Um, and so I, I was I was approached about the tennis African job a couple of years ago, and, and to be honest, I actually when I was first approached, I actually turned it down because I had a certain perception about tennis in South Africa. Um, and then the opportunity came up again, and I actually looked at the data, and I really just saw tennis in South Africa, despite its many problems and challenges, as being actually being a, a sport with huge growth potential, almost being a sleeping giant, so a sport that was very very big in South Africa, probably in the 80s and 90s, and then went into decline. And I think we we're in a, in a rebuilding phase from a tennis South Africa perspective, but it's a sport with such huge potential in South Africa. And where does it fit currently in the geography of sport in, uh, in South Africa? Because you've, you've got presumably rugby, cricket and football, both domestically and the likes of the EPL. 
they're the top three, right? So, so where? Yeah, yeah that's correct. So, yeah. so, so yeah. where's tennis? I think the, in terms of the data that I looked at about when I when I first took the job, tennis was probably about the, the number seven sports in South Africa, and our target is very much on the fourth position. So we'd like to be uh, number four from a popularity and interest and participation perspective. We'll never be as big as the big three that you mentioned, but I think there's there's an awful lot of people who play tennis in South Africa, and there's a history and a legacy. Um, and I think we've we've made some really good progress over the last two years, considering where we've come from. But we've still got a long way to go. I often refer to it as we're in a marathon and we're probably 10 kilometers into our marathon. So we've run a fast 10K time, but we've still got an awful long way to go to get tennis back to where it needs to be. Just out of interest, what are the sports in between currently at four, five and six? Uh, athletics. So athletics is really strong. I mean, I, I think if, if you follow athletics closely, you know that, that South Africa has produced a number of, of, of really good athletes on the global stage. And that's always good for a sport. Uh, so athletics is, is strong. Netball, surprisingly, is, is right up there. Very strong, uh, obviously, female participation. Uh, I'd say, probably say those are the two sports ahead of us. But I think we've, we've really narrowed the gap. And I, th- I think there's a lot of positivity, positivity around South African tennis at the moment. But I guess I have to say that as the chief cheerleader for, for our local tennis. <laughs> but it was interesting because I was reading up on your appointment. And when you were appointed, you were considered young and uh, a fresh face for tennis south africa and i tell me if i'm wrong but is that in contrast to the to use an english phrase the blazers that had been perceived to be running south Af- african sport until that time or certainly in the previous decades yeah i mean i think in many ways south african sports is still sort of mired in that in that sort of blazer mentality a lot of our sports and i think tennis especially has been very old very conservative um and i think it was uh, a very interesting uh, appointment that they appointed me in the first place because i'm certainly not a blazer and look i, I was yeah I've, a lot of the coverage is, has focused on my youth but i'm i'm i'll take that as a compliment because i'm in my early 40s so i've obviously got to still retain my boyish good looks um, but uh, yeah, I will we, put a really picture tried... of you up against me, and we're—I'm a couple of years older than you, but I look about two decades older than you, Rich. Let's. Well, I think it's—it's it's all that global travel, your global jet set life has taken years of years off your face. Baby face well, assassin. Years. I'm going to leave you with baby face. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, go on, go on back. Yeah, and, and so and so, what what we've really tried to do is, um, and the, the the board of tennis South Africa have been really supportive. They've we've really tried to run the federation in a very, very different way. We've really tried to almost take a, an agency mindset and be much more nimble and be much more creative and innovative. Um, and, and I think that that's, that's really started to pay off because we're really operating unlike any other sports federation in South Africa. And I think that's really started to pay off. And I think there's been a lot of interest in what we've tried to do. And I think we've made some progress uh, I'll give you one example. Something that we're very proud of is the fact that in the last 18 months, we've signed nine sponsors varying sizes and a combination of global brands and and local brands as well but i think that's testimony to to what we're trying to do and people are excited by what we're trying to do yeah i was going to say that because i i I looked at your early interviews and there seemed to be two things you were concentrating on a improving the relationships b getting the cash in (laughs) in order to do some good work were those Priorities A number one because you've 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 uh, or A number one and two I suppose because you've alluded to uh, having somewhat solved the money issue not completely I'm sure but somewhat. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's a really good summary. I mean, I don't come from a tennis background at all. I'm probably the worst tennis player on the planet. Um, so I, I don't have any experience in tennis. And I actually saw that as being a real uh, positive and benefit because what it meant was that I had to listen and I had to learn. And I think people were very, very receptive to that, that the new CEO was actually taking the time to listen to people. Um, and I, I think the, the, other, the other secondary focus was very much on the financial side in terms of financial stability. Um, because when I took the job at the end of 2016 and then the board of Tennis South Africa were very, very honest with me, the, actually the funds of the federation were set to dry up. I mean, we would have had no more money in the bank in about five or six months' time from when I started. So that was a massive, massive focus. Um, my wife thought I was crazy taking the job, but I really saw the potential. And thankfully, it's paid off. We're in a very fi uh, financially stable position now. And that means we've been able to start to invest in the grassroots and invest in our player pathway. So it's, it's, it was a bit of a risk, but I think it's one that's, that uh, seems to have paid off in the short term anyway. And we're very, very excited about what we're doing. And there's some really exciting stuff coming down the pipeline. Yeah, and a lot of the partnerships are directly related to grassroots tennis. There's female empowerment. I'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah. there's also grassroots is, is fundamental. I, I saw some videos about the growth point uh, relationship. J just talk about that. So I was interested in that. Yeah. Yeah, so, so in many ways, financially, the turning point for us was securing a, a company called Growth Point Properties as our headline sponsor. Now, Growth Point Properties are, are probably the largest commer commercial and retail property company in the Southern Hemisphere, massive in South Africa, one of the biggest companies in South Africa, big presence in, in Australia. And now they've invested significantly in Eastern Europe. So they're becoming, they were a South African player, now they're increasingly becoming a global player. Um, and they came on board as the headline sponsor of tennis last year. And that's really allowed us to invest in the grassroots. And, and that's an important part of the strategy because I think a lot of people say we should be focusing on big events and bringing Roger Federer to South Africa and having big ATP events here. But our view, our collective view as, as a federation is that we actually have to reinvest in the grassroots because it's all very well bringing those events to South Africa, but uh, not many South Africans would be playing in them at the moment until we start to produce more players and really start that grassroots revival. Um, and I think it surprised people that we focused intensively on the grassroots, but it, it's definitely starting to pay off in terms of some of the numbers we're starting to see in terms of the metrics that we're tracking. And the other aspect was the female empowerment you, you've you've had a big concentration of appealing to the to the female market in south africa why oh it's quite simple and that's it's 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 purely a business decision in that if you look at the data around tennis as a sport and i think this data probably correlates to tennis across the globe not just in south africa but it's very evenly split in terms of fans but also from a participation perspective, equally between men and women. So it's a very gender-neutral or gender-friendly sport. And I think uh, Tennis South Africa as a federation has always been sort of very much skewed towards the men, and we've sort of neglected the female side. Um, and I think that's borne out by the fact that we are producing more men than, than female players that are coming through. Um, and so it was purely a business decision and a recognition that if we can't ignore half our target markets. And so we, we, we were lucky enough to bring on Whiphold. So Whiphold is a is a fascinating company in the South African context. It's a 100% black female owned and managed investment company. And they've got investments in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So they're a very wealthy company. And they've got a strong female empowerment angle. Uh, they actually sponsor Custer Semenya, who I'm sure many of your listeners will know. She's obviously a global athlete and has, has made headlines for many reasons from an athletics perspective, but they support her. And they've really started to invest on the on the female side. So that's that's been really exciting. 
And there was a stat that when you came into the job a couple of years ago, the section of the population that was now was it most interested or most participant or, or or the most participants was uh, black women uh, twenty to thirty five or sixteen to thirty five. Just just yes. correct. Just correct me. Uh, sorry, sorry. Interest. No, let me correct interest. you. Interest. Yeah. Interest. From an interest perspective, fans. It, now that's, that's that struck me as surprising. Yeah, it was, and it was actually one of the reasons that I took the job when I saw this data because tennis in South Africa has a has, has this perception, or people in South Africa have a perception of tennis as being very elitist, and because of that, being very white and being very upper class, and not necessarily being a, a mainstream sport. And when I saw that data. I just thought that, hang on, there's something here that we can really work with to really step change and grow the sport. Um, and it, it is very, very true that, that, that anecdotally that data has been borne out on countless occasions by people who've spoken to me. Uh, but it's not because of Tennis South Africa. I'm utterly convinced it's because of this, the Williams sisters, Serene and, and Venus. They have, thankfully, they have helped us create this, this massive demographic of, of female fans that we're now starting to tap into, which is incredibly exciting. And I think one of the... One of the things that we've really tried to do in my first two years in the job is, is really try and change the narrative around tennis in South Africa because there's this perception that, I, that I've spoken to earlier, but really try to show people that actually the perception is not always the reality. And there's some actually some really exciting growth opportunities within tennis. And it's still taking some time, but I think that narrative is, is really starting to penetrate. Just to develop that, you, you, you have another of your specific sponsorships is BNP Padabas, who have, um, well, you, well, you tell me about the scheme, but it's targeted on, on black female coaches, right? Yeah, so, so that's another interesting one and one that we're really excited about because I think it's going to lead to bigger things. But um, BNP Paribas are, are probably the biggest sponsor of tennis globally. They sponsor the Davis Cup. They sponsor the Fed Cup. They most probably most famously sponsor the French Open. Um, and we've done a really interesting deal with their, their sort of their local affiliate, BNP Paribas South Africa, uh, to sponsor a coaches mentorship program, which is an intervention from Tennis South Africa to try and grow the demographics of, of registered coaches in South Africa, which are very still very heavily skewed towards old white males. And look, I've got nothing against old white males because <laughs> I'm rapidly becoming one. Um, but I think it's important that in this the socioeconomic context in which we operate, that we, as a, as a federation, we realize that if tennis is to grow and to be played by all communities in South Africa, we need a coaching, uh, a coaching panel or coaching pool that's representative of the population. So it's a deliberate intervention by Tennis South Africa to widen that demographic. Um, and it's been, we've launched it on a trial basis this year, and it's, it's been really exciting to see how it's grown and developed to such, a, to such an extent that we, we're going to be uh, doubling the number of, of coaches that we mentor next year. So it's a really exciting thing. How useful has it been to have an elite player, Kevin Anderson, your, your, your number one player, having success in what's probably the autumn of his career now he's 32 but he's got to grand slam finals in the last two years uh, is that is that a happy positive accident or or do you can you claim some influence on that yeah it's an interesting question because kevin has had a bit of a he's had a complex relationship historically with the federation um famously he hasn't played davis cup uh, for South Africa for a number of years and, that, and because he feels that maybe the federation didn't support him financially and otherwise when he was coming through as a, as a junior into the sort of the transition into his professional career. And I think that's probably true. I mean, I've, I've publicly said 
uh, which has been quite widely reported in South Africa, that we didn't do enough as a federation to support him. Um, and we've tried to learn from that. But that being said, I mean, I think his his success first at the US Open was was massive last year. But I mean, his, his run at Wimbledon was uh, exponentially probably 10 times bigger from a from a South African tennis perspective in terms of shining a light on the sport, getting people excited again, and, and critically getting kids excited about playing tennis. There were some really nice videos on social media um, during both the US Open and the Wimbledon run of, of kids in front of the TV with their tennis rackets pretending to be Kevin Anderson, which is, I mean, for a sport is like for a sport like ours, which is a sort of a Cinderella or, or B division sport, is absolutely rocket fuel for us. But with that relationship, do you have to be concerned about the way you you use that positive image because you don't want to jump on the back of an athlete who's claiming you didn't help them enough and albeit you've admitted that and you're open and it's a previous regime you don't want to be seen to be exploitative jumping on the bandwagon and yet you need to use it in a positive way so that's a bit of a tightrope isn't it it is very much a tightrope yeah and i mean i think we got we took a bit of stick on uh, social media um when he particularly when he made when he made it to the final of the us open last year um, about not supporting him. But I, th I think the the fact that we've dealt with it in an honest way and the fact that we, we're celebrating his achievements, we're not necessarily taking credit for them, has, 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 has gone down pretty well. Um, but it is very much a, a tightrope. And it's, it's one that uh, I'm not sure we necessarily navigate uh, correctly all the time, but we honestly try and be sensitive and, re and respectful to his achievements. And the fact that his achievements are very much down to him, his family and his coaching staff. And also we've tried to... Critically, we've also tried to learn the lessons from what happened with Kevin in that we are now trying to support some of our um, emerging players much more than maybe the Federation has historically. And I'll give you one example, a player called, called Lloyd Harris. So Lloyd Harris has had a fantastic year. He's, uh, I think he's 112 in the ATP rankings at the moment. Um, he started the year at, at 200 plus, but he's had a fantastic run and, and we're forecasting that he'll be a top 100 player early in um, 2019. And while we can't necessarily take credit for what he's done, because that that obviously once again goes down to the player and the coach, we have been financially supporting him for over a year now and providing him financial support. And I think that's definitely played a factor in his rise. So we've tried to learn from some of the lessons and the mistakes of, of the Kevin Anderson era. I was looking at your... I think Lloyd Harris is your number three, I believe, and Raven Clarkson is your number two. Um uh, obviously, Kevin Anderson, your number one in terms of the men. And yes. I, and I looked on the list for looked on the WTA top one hundred for uh, South African females, and I, I had to look a long way down. And yes. We've got Chanel Simmons, who's currently at two nine four. She's barely making the top three hundred. I mean, this is difficult. It's a difficult question to ask, and I think it would be difficult for an English person to ask. But why is there that huge discrepancy between the different sexes? Because you've got uh, yeah, uh, uh, some some very competitive players in the men's section, but the females, uh, certainly in, in global terms, seem much weaker. Yeah, and I, I think it's back to my earlier comment about uh, the federation being very much focused on the men and not necessarily focusing on the female side of the game a bit. Um, so really, we've we've really tried to make it much more gender friendly and gender equal. Um, but we've obviously got a long way to go to really turn things around, particularly from a female tennis perspective. Um, the problem is we live in a quick fix society and people just expect you to push a button and suddenly all the problems and hundreds of players to be jumping out of the woodwork. But the reality of 
producing a, a player, particularly a tennis player, is that it's, it's probably going to take us a generation to really equalize the, the gender imbalance that's existed within the federation. So, look, it's a massive frustration for me personally, but it's going to take some time. But as I say, we've, we've tried to really put things on an equal footing. So, Chanel is actually one of the, the players that we do also financially support now. Um, in terms of our Davis Cup and Fed Cup uh, structures, we've tried to make them exactly the same because historically our Davis Cup men's team has, has received more focus and more investment than our women's Fed Cup team. So we've, we've really tried to equalize that so they operate on exactly the same basis. But as I said earlier, it's going to take some time. You know, we can't push a button and, and suddenly start producing to female players. But that being said, there's some really talented juniors coming through, female juniors and also male juniors as well. As a CEO of a sport in a country, <laughs> it seems to me a tremendous balancing act because you've, you're going to have to look after the participatory level. You're going to have to look after the economics of it. You're going to have to look after the high end of it. You're going to have to look after the individual sport. You're going to have to look after the team sport in the Davis Cup. It's a tremendous balancing act. Have you got any any particular approach to that? Any any formula? Any way you look at it? Or do, or, yeah, well, or, 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 or do you just need to try and keep every plate spinning and and give them a sufficient amount of, of attention so that plate doesn't fall off the pole as it were yeah i mean i think it's an excellent question so i, I do drink a lot of red wine that, that definitely helps <laughs> okay that definitely assists me uh, yeah. not at work of course obviously after hours um but i i think it, you're right it's it's a very complex uh, very complex job and and look we're a small federation our, our resources are, are limited so um, as I said earlier, South Africa has probably one of the most uh, complex socio-economic environments in which to operate in the world. So I think I think if you can run a sports federation in South Africa, you can probably run a, a sports federation in in most parts of the world. Um, but I, th I think uh, the sort of the the maxim that I operate with and my staff get really irritated because I use this a lot. And there's there's a there's a famous saying: How do you eat an elephant? Or a famous question: How do you eat an elephant? And it's one spoon at a time. Um, and that's really how we're trying to approach dealing with Tennis South Africa and its many challenges and many problems. We've tried to be very, very focused. So, And we've tried to break it up into phases. So phase one, in terms of the first two years of my tenure, I've been on, focused on three specific things. It's been on financial stability, which we've, we've moved towards. It's been investing in the grassroots, which we've moved towards. And it's been investing in our player pathway in terms of trying to create that one runway for play, junior players to, to lift off into the professional ranks. Um, so work continues on those three things. Now we take the next spoon of the elephant in terms of looking to raise the profile of the sport in this country in terms of looking to bring more international events to South Africa, both junior and senior events investing in new formats like beach tennis, which I'm, I'm very, very excited about, and I'll, I'll tell you a bit more about that shortly. Um, and then and then also in, in terms of the uh, the promotion of the game, very much in the digital and social media side, because we are a long way behind where we need to be as a federation from a digital and social perspective. But as I say, we've needed to almost put the building blocks in place to get to a point now where we can actually go on the front foot and invest in some of those areas that I've spoken about. Okay, tell me about beach tennis, because funnily enough, in England, we don't tend to have that. I don't think we have it anyway. I've certainly never heard of it. So tell me about beach tennis. Yeah, so beach tennis is interesting because a lot of the sort of tradition, the traditionalists in South African, uh, local tennis, South African tennis, turn their noses up at new formats <laughs> because it's not real tennis. But 
the, the point is that beach tennis is, is a really fun and cheap way of introducing someone into a sport. Um, and the analogy or the example I use is if you're going to take a kid who's never played tennis before and you put them in front of a beach tennis court or a traditional tennis court, which do you think they're going to gravitate towards? And 10 times out of 10, because we've actually, we've actually tested this, the kid, first-time kid will, will head towards the beach tennis court. So it's a really fascinating uh, way of introducing kids, particularly kids who don't necessarily have access to f- tennis facilities, because tennis is an expensive sport into a form of tennis. Um, we're actually announcing a big sponsorship, um, a beach tennis sponsorship. It's a multi-million rand sponsorship where we're going to be bringing a number of international beach tennis events to South Africa. So some of the best be- international beach tennis players in the world are coming in and playing in big money events. I think the the series culminates in, in an event in a, in a coastal area called Plettenberg Bay. Um, and that event will be one of the five richest beach tennis events in the world in terms of prize money. So it, I think as a federation, we need to recognize the fact that if we're going to grow and, and, and reach out to a new audience, we need to think about new formats and fun formats and short formats. And that's really part of the mindset of, of what we're trying to do now as, as a sort of a traditional sport. How big is your team? You talked about your staff. So how big is it and what's the rough org chart? Uh, look, we're we're a very very small team, and we're a very very flat team. So uh, the t- the team's about eighteen in terms of the head office, and then we rely on a network across our provinces. So there are nine provinces in South Africa, and we have a network of people operating in those nine provinces. But it's very very small. I mean, it, I look at the resources that some of the Grand Slam countries have, and some of the richer tennis countries have, and I just I'm amazed. So. Uh, just what the resources they have at their disposal. And I, I, sometimes I do wonder whether they, they shouldn't be doing more with the resources, the people resources they have at their disposal. And you talked about social media. How are you using that? I mean, we spoke about it before, but I looked at your at your numbers and I, and they weren't as big as I thought. That that They were not as, I think we're talking 16,000 on, on Facebook and 9,000 on Twitter and a couple of thousand on Instagram. I expected more than that for tennis in South Africa. Yeah, and I think I think you're right. I mean, I, th- I think it's it's a direct result of a of a lack of investment and a and a lack of understanding from the federation's part in terms of the importance and power of of social and digital. Um, in terms of the data, there's there's about seven hundred thousand active tennis players in South Africa. So. That's a fairly healthy number from a participation perspective. But as you say, that hasn't translated in terms of the metrics on social media. Um, But now we've got a bit of money and we can actually invest in that function. We're actually running a tender process at the moment to appoint a a digital PR and and social media agency because we want an integrated approach. Um, And I'm really hoping that... Uh, that in that process and the, the subsequent investment that we'll make will really translate into terms of converting those 700,000 tennis players into active uh, active social mem- social media people. Presumably that involves um, a sophisticated CRM solution as well because that's one of the interesting things with, with tennis being, it can be very high profile, but at the, the participatory level is very, very important. So you need to reach a lot of people. You need to get them involved. You need to get the right message to the right person. And that obviously is via digital and social media and then a, 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 a CRM solution on top. So, so where are you in that process? Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah, so that's happening in parallel behind the scenes as we um, we're looking to completely relaunch our membership proposition because we have a, a current membership proposition in terms of becoming a member and 
which gives you the right to play tournaments or being a junior member, which gives you the right to play junior tournaments. But that's uh, that proposition is being completely overhauled because one is it's confusing and two is it's um, it's not really providing the value and the benefits that I would want as a as a tennis South Africa member. So there's a there's a in summary I think there's a huge amount of structural work going on behind the scenes in order in order to try and put us on the front foot for 2019. Um, as I say, it's it's been a it's been a deliberate process on our part in terms of focusing on those three key areas that I spoke about earlier: grassroots, sustainability, and the player pathway. And now that we've started to make some progress there, we now move on to the front foot in terms of really investing in and raising the profile of, of tennis in South Africa, with social and, and digital being at the forefront of that strategy. You talked about player pathway, and you've got the scheme where you financially help players. You've also got the Stellenbosch University Tennis Centre. Is that up and running now, or is that in process? Is that being built, or is it... Being, it, yeah, so we signed we, we signed a deal with Stellenbosch University, which is one of our leading tertiary institutions, to build a national tennis center there. So it's a staggered approach. So the program launches in 2019, but sort of the sexy, glossy bells and whistles national tennis center is still a few years from becoming a reality. But it, it's, it's really a, a sort of a multi-phased uh, or multi-viewed approach to the player pathway. And we've, we've identified uh, interventions in the under 18, so Know, under 12, under 14, under 16, and under 18 age groups. Uh, we've identified interventions in terms of that transition from being a junior to becoming a pro, particularly the, the 19 to 22 year old age group. And then we've identified some interventions for the sort of the players who are on the circuit to 22, 23 onwards. So there's, there's interventions that are being made um, in all three of those sort of age categories. But, but the reality is in terms of creating players and creating Grand Slam players, it's going to take a long, long time to get us to where we want to be. I suspect there'll be a tipping point in maybe five or six years where suddenly the South African players, both male and female, popping out of the woodwork at Grand Slam level and people will be like, wow, where did all these players come from? But really the seeds of, of, of that will, are being sown right now and are being hopefully will bear fruit in five or six years. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's always the case, isn't it? With, with a, as I say, a CEO of a sport where you're looking after a sport at all levels. Well, it takes a generation for your work to come through. I remember when Arsenal changed their academy and it was always going to take 10 years, 12 years, 15 years for those eight-year-olds to be established first-team players or certainly 10 years to their knocking on the door of the first team. And likewise, when we had a good Olympics, 2012, we had a good good Olympics. Obviously, we built up as, as Team GB, I mean. Obviously, we built up to the games and invested, but... When you unraveled that back, a lot of the seeds of that were shown in the John Major administration 20 years before. So in many ways, a CEO of a sport is merely sowing the seeds for the CEOs that, that, that are two or three down the line. And so you need to be unselfish. That's what I'm saying. You need to have a, a broader view and, and approach it in an un unselfish way. Yeah, exa exactly right. I mean, I think... Uh it's become a bit of a cliche in sport, but a lot of obviously high performance consultants and coaches and managers always talk about the process and focusing on the process. I think there's that catchphrase, focus on the root and not the fruit, um, which in, in, it is, is a bit of a cliche, but in many ways is very, very true. And we're very focused on the roots at the moment. Um, and I, I think it's, it's actually in many ways, it's, it's really exciting because I come from an agency background. I, I ran my own agency for a number of years before this job. And I think 
one of the frustrations that I had working in an agency environment is that you can do some great work and for clients and you can deliver some great work from a sponsorship perspective or other areas. But ultimately, you're just a service provider. You really are on the periphery in terms of really being able to influence something. Um, but now, for the first time in my working career, I'm at the center of something. And I have the opportunity, along with my team and a, and a really good board of directors, to actually completely transform and, and, and revolutionize a sport. And I think that's, a, in many ways, that's once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I mean, I've, I've really been given a blank sheet of paper in many ways. And critically, I've also been given the freedom to color in that paper as, as, as I see fit, but well, obviously with some guidance from the board. And I think that's, that's just a really exciting opportunity. And I don't really mind about the fruit, as I say, because the root is just so fascinating and intellectually challenging, but also intellectually stimulating as well. You were commercial director for South African cricket as well. So what did you learn there and what have you taken across? Is it comparable? Yeah, it was, is it comparable? Uh, yes and no. I think cricket is, is, is arguably the richest sports federation in South Africa. Um, and that's mainly because of the, the international broadcasting deals they do, particularly from an India perspective. So I think the Indian broadcasting deal is a, is a, is a massive deal that, that really fuels the sport. Uh, my timing at Cricket South Africa was pretty unlucky because um, pretty soon after I joined Cricket South Africa, um, there was the IPL bonus scandal that was pretty well uh, well reported. So that was an issue, something that happened before I joined, but really broke after I joined, which obviously dented the credibility and the commercial credibility of Cricket South Africa. And uh, subsequently, there was also a government uh, commission or government investigation into cricket in, in South Africa. And so it was a very, very challenging and, and difficult time. And I, I think probably the one big lesson that I learned from my time at Cricket South Africa was uh, the power of perception, particularly within South Africa and within South African sports and South African media, and that there was a very, very negative perception around cricket in South Africa at the time. And I, I guess to an extent it was based on some fact and some truth. But there was a lot of good and a lot of positive things happening in, in cricket in South Africa at the time. And I think that's really one take that I took is, is the importance of managing perception from a, from a sports federation perspective in South Africa. Because I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world anyway, but in, in South Africa, people believe what they read in the media. Um, and I think we live in an era of uh, ambiguity from a media perspective in terms of, you know, it's the era of fake news, etc. And that's something that's really that I've really taken with me to tennis South Africa and that you need to understand the perception that you're portraying as a federation. And it's not about telling lies or telling fake, fake news, but you really need to understand what your DNA is about from a storytelling perspective. And you need to become really, really clear and concise in how you're telling that story and how you, how you portraying yourself as a, as a federation. And I think really what we've, what we've done well as a federation is we've, we've made it very, very clear that we have a clear vision for where we want to go. We've also articulated a very clear plan for how we plan to get there. It's been underpinned by really good corporate governance. So I think one of the great things about the current board of Tennis South Africa is a very strong focus on good governance. And critically, we've started to execute on that plan. And I think that's a narrative that's, that's really struck home, both in corporate South Africa, but in the wider South African sporting industry as well. Well, these days, that storytelling aspect and getting your message out there, it, it, it's all about content and social media, isn't it? Which is the next part of your plan. Now, that isn't to say that what is in the media is, is, all, is all lies and what you're saying about yourself is all lies, but everyone projects their own story. And the way you, you bust through that these days is, is by telling a compelling, um, honest 
story about yourself on social, getting your content strategy right, isn't it? And that's what you're doing. Yeah, and we, which we're also trying to be as honest as possible, which I think has has, has uh, surprised a few people because that honesty is not necessarily a, uh, something that you associate with South African Sports Federation. So I've done a couple of radio interviews where the interviewer has come out hard and challenged me on a number of things, and I've I've held up my head and said, no, you're exactly right. Uh, we we're struggling in those areas. We've got challenges in those areas, but critically, this is what we're planning to do about that. And I think that's that's been really well received particularly by the media and that they know that we'll always try and be as honest as possible and we'll 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 take accountability for our mistakes and our issues and and we'll but critically we'll also show how we plan to rectify those or plan to improve is that the generational uh, shift though the fact that that you're younger and you're obviously in a position where you're 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 saying you're concentrating on the root not the fruit which i'm talking about as taking your ego out of it because you know your work might only be seen in 20 years' time, the real fruits of your work. And that approach is coming through in what you're saying, and it's so different to what has been seen in, in South Africa that it's working for you. You're not trying to bluster and blunder your way through. You're saying, yeah, we're doing this well, and we're doing that not so well. And if you're prepared to accept the shades of grey in your argument, then people are more likely to give you credit for what you're good at because you're being perceived as honest. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I look back in my career and I look back at the sort of the trajectory my career has taken and I look back at some of maybe the mistakes I've made. And I, I like to think that I've tried to learn from those mistakes and, and try and be a better a better manager and a better leader, although I'm far from perfect. But I, I think one of the, the biggest benefits that I have is, is actually my wife and that she's a very honest person and she keeps me very grounded. So I think having that honesty and that, that person who's not afraid to, to tell you what their opinion and the honest truth in terms of how you're performing and what you should be doing better at is, 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 is a really great <laughs> benefit and attribute to have, although sometimes it doesn't feel like that after a long day of work. Right, I'm going to steer the conversation away from your wife <laughs> for both of our goods. Um, Davis Cup. Now, Davis Cup is interesting in tennis terms because tennis is seen as an individual sport, but it's a little, little bit like the Ryder Cup. When Davis Cup is going well, it can be a real galvaniser and a cut through for tennis in a country. And you've got both the men's and the women's team promoted um, late last year, early this year. Um, how. How can you use Davis Cup to help spread the word of South African tennis? Because, as I say, it's it's a, it's got a different vibe to it. And it can really make a cut through. Yeah, I mean, it can. I mean, I think one of the the challenges about Davis Cup is it's uh, until the recent reforms that were passed by the ITF AGM earlier this year was that it's actually quite a complex uh, event and a, a complex tournament to understand. Um, and so, from a from a sort of a commercial and, and and marketing perspective, it's actually quite a difficult event because, I mean, if you look at football, you understand the structure of football in terms of international football. People understand the structure of international football. But Davis Cup is complicated because of its divisional approach. Mm. Um, so you can – one of the great things about the World Cup, the FIFA World Cup qualification process is that South Africa can go into the qualifiers for the World Cup. And if they go through the different stages, they can play in the World Cup at the end of that process. Whereas the Davis Cup, if you're outside the world group, South Africa can go into a Davis Cup year um, knowing that the best they can hope for is promotion to the next group. They can't necessarily qualify for the, for the World Cup of tennis. 
Um, and I think that's why maybe some of the, the reforms and changes that the ITF have made recently, although the traditionalists have obviously thrown up their hands and it's been very divisive within the tennis community in terms of the changes that have been made. I think on balance, it's probably the right thing to do for tennis in terms of the, the format of the Davis Cup. Um, because the new format in terms of creating a week-long event and creating a World Cup of tennis events modeled on the football model is, is is probably the right way to go on balance. Although some of the history and tradition of, of Davis Cup has been lost by as a result of these changes. But I think it's something that we we support because I think it's it's been a very confusing format um, for us uh, in terms of trying to market the game and try and, in terms of trying to use it to sell the game of tennis. And I'm hoping the new format will, will help us. Yeah, so you're you're in favour of that. I was going to ask about it because it is this 2019 season-ending tournament, a little bit like a World Cup. It's a one-off. Everyone's in the same place, a neutral venue. Uh, it is a bit of a it is a bit of a game changer for tennis because, as you say, Davis Cup was ignored in the UK for a significant period of time. Then we started to get good at it, and we started to do yes. well and get promoted yes. and promoted and promoted, and it be, and then it became galvanising. But this, it, it's even then it was hard to understand. It's like, oh, we're playing Slovenia, and we're playing at Wimbledon, and I, I didn't really know what it meant because you're going up, up and down groups. So, Correct. So, so is, you know, you've got this, and the other thing I was going to ask about was tie-break 10s. Is this both those things? Are they tennis changing its format to adapt to the times? Because you, you can see a link between T20 cricket and tiebreak 10s. You yes. can see a link between you know the, the way that, that cricket World Cups have been organised, rugby World Cups have been organised, where now effectively you've got a tennis World Cup. Effectively, that's what it is. That's what, what it's going to feel like. Um, is that tennis being dragged into, if not the future, the, at least the present? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think tennis is, has, is, is one of the most traditional of, of all sporting codes, and I think it's, it's been very conservative. Um, look, I, in terms of the new Davis Cup format, format, no one knows if it's going to be a success or not. I, I suspect that if, if there's a few tweaks and a few changes and a few improvements, that in time it'll be, it will be proved to be a success, just because it's a much easier concept to understand. The critical thing is if the player supports it. And obviously in tennis, there's historically, there's always been a bit of a, a battle between the ATP, especially, and, and, and the ITF from a uh, player power perspective. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the coming years. But I think it's these sorts of changes are absolutely vital to tennis in terms of short-form tennis, in terms of a, a refined Davis Cup, in terms of new formats like beach tennis that we talked about earlier. Tennis has to experiment and try things because... The perception of tennis in South Africa and the perception of tennis globally is that it's an elite of sports. You know, it's that got that that country club vibe, and I think that applies to most countries in the world. And tennis has to be brave and has to innovate, and mistakes are going to be made along the way because that's a part of the innovation process. But I think it, it really has to because I think particularly the men's game and, and to the women's game to a certain extent faces a massive challenge in coming years because. Roger Federer doesn't have many years left. He's going to be gone soon. Nadal will be on his heels. Djokovic and Murray will follow thereafter. And you take out those four players from the men's game, it leaves a, a, a huge hole in the, in, the, in the men's game. And so tennis needs to recognize that and, and recognize that it needs to evolve and change and move with the times. Just final couple. Um, just to, I want to explore the, the aspect of um, CSR and, and social good for South African tennis. You, have you been taking the game 
around to the poorer parts of the country, which I presume are the, are more more populated by by the black population. Um, and how much of a focus is that? And do you see tennis as an instrument for social change within South Africa? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really excellent question. I mean, I, th- I think if you look at all the, sp- a lot, uh, the majority of sponsorships that we've done in the last 18 months that I mentioned, there's a strong so- corporate social responsibility element to that. Um, and I think corporates in South Africa recognize the fact that um, corporate social responsibility is, is, is pivotal and critical to any sponsorship. Um, from a from a sort of a, a growth perspective in terms of taking tennis to communities that that haven't traditionally been exposed to tennis or played tennis, um, we've been rolling out a, a strategy or plan or, or around national development centres in terms of taking a centralised approach to development. So we've been rolling out uh, development centres. We've identified five critical provinces, and we've rolled out development centres in those provinces. And the plan is is in the next few years to have a development centre in all nine provinces in South Africa. And that's putting in really good coaches, putting them, put investing in the facilities, investing in the equipment. And the fascinating thing has been, although it's early days, I mean, some of these centres have been operating for less than a year. All of these centres are chock-a-block in terms of players. We've actually got a very interesting challenge now in terms of um, we don't have enough coaches, we don't have enough courts at these centres because the demand is so high in terms of the sort of the uh, black working-class population in South Africa. Um, and so while it's still early days, those sorts of developments are really exciting for the future of tennis in this country. Because I, I obviously have had a bit of experience in, in, the, in the football space. And if you look at football, um, you look at the best players in the world. Historically, they've come from tough working-class environments or working-class conditions. I think those are the conditions that seem to breed champions. And I'm utterly convinced that some of the work that we're doing in terms of our provincial development centers will produce a player, and a black player, let's be honest about this, who will go on to play in Grand Slams for South Africa um, and potentially win a Grand Slam for South Africa. And if that happens, I mean, that's a massive tipping point for the sport of tennis in South Africa and something that we're working really hard towards achieving. I was just going to finish off with what's your biggest achievement so far and what's your biggest aim? I mean, just to leave the achievement so far to a side, would that be your biggest aim? If you were to get a, a black South African grandstand champion, that 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 would be is that is that the ultimate prize for want of a better word for you, ultimate target because it what it would mean so much to not only the sport but the country. Yeah, I think it would. I mean, as I said, I think it would be a massive, tip, the massive tipping point for tennis in this country. I must say, we've got we've got a couple of well, more than a couple of, of juniors, black t- black junior tennis players that are coming through that are incredibly exciting. I'd prefer not to name names, but there's one boy, a 15 year old boy, um, who's probably the most naturally tennis naturally talented tennis player that this country has produced in 40 years. Uh, he won his first ATP points at 15, and that just gives you a, a sense of how much talent he has. And I think he's he's one that we're supporting. But there's a, there's a number of more uh, young black players coming through, and that's really exciting. Um, but look, I, I don't think we'll produce a, a black uh, Grand Slam player in my time at Tennis South Africa, but I hope in future years we will. And really my my big aim as CEO of Tennis South Africa is, is really just to leave the federation and the sports of tennis in South Africa in a better position when I leave than when I found it. And I think if I can do that and then my successor can do the same, leave it in a better position where then he or she found it, then that can only be incredibly positive for the sports of tennis in South Africa. Richard Glover, thank you very much.
Thank you. Please follow at Sports Content Strategy on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, it's Sports Content SP. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog and sign up for his newsletter at mrrichardclark.com. 